Welcome to another episode of SharkBites.net, where we delve into issues of tech leadership in the public sector. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to SharkBites.net. Here now is our host, Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute, now a division of Fusion Learning Partners. Hi there, this is Alan Shark, and welcome to another episode of SharkBytes.net. This is season three, and this is another special Encore presentation. Nothing is more timely this summer than the heat. We are finding that the temperature has risen beyond anyone's expectation, and by far, we have recorded the hottest temperatures on the planet in the year 2023. So it seems most appropriate to go back to a podcast we did in June of 2022, where we interviewed David Hadula, who for all effective purposes was the first and still remains the chief heat officer for the city of Phoenix. Let's join us where we were and realize we are still at the same place. In this episode, we will have a conversation with Dr. David Handula, Director, Office of Heat Response and Mitigation, City of Phoenix. It caught our attention when it made the national headlines, when uh, we saw some things that um, kind of surprised us, something that you wouldn't expect from a city in terms of innovation. I should mention in setting the stage, David is also an associate professor, School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, Arizona State University. He's been doing this for nine plus years. David's research focuses on the social and health effects of natural and technological hazards with an emphasis on extreme heat and power failures, hint to today's discussion. He works closely with local, regional, and state authorities on the development and implementation of plans and programs to make communities safer, more resilient, and extreme events. At ASU, David serves as a leadership team for the Urban Climate Research Center and the Central Arizona Phoenix Long-Term Ecological Research Program. He's also on the steering committee for the Arizona Extreme Heat Preparedness and Resilience Workgroup and a faculty affiliate of the Maricopa County Department of Public Health. He's done a lot. His doctorate is at the University of UVA. And uh, with that, um, I'm, I'm so happy to meet with you. And if you don't mind, let's be a little informal. We'll call you David for the purposes of this podcast. But I recognize that you are a doctor. Um, David, first of all, tell us, how did you get started in all this? I mean, at some point, we'll get to the present. But what got you so curious about science and then technology early on in your life? Well, Alan, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be on for, for Shark Bites and to share a little bit of what uh, we've been doing at the at the city of Phoenix, trying to uh, really set a national model, international model for how cities can, can manage this uh, ever-growing hazard. But to, to answer your question, I've always been a weather enthusiast. Uh, I had the dubious distinction of serving as uh, one of our television uh, weather broadcasters in high school in the homeroom channel. And, and before that, I can remember uh, having my parents' VHS camcorder out, uh, documenting some of the severe weather events we'd have in central New Jersey, where I grew up. I very distinctly uh, remember flooding associated with Hurricane Floyd uh, that, that came through. So I've always had an interest in the weather. Uh, I've had an interest in, in weather communication in one form or another, which I think is a big part of the job I'm in right now. Uh, and over time, found my way into heat, 
which doesn't immediately strike folks, uh, I don't think strike folks as a very interesting weather hazard. Uh, but as I went through undergraduate and graduate school, learned that in fact, there's a, a quite a lot of interest uh, and quite a lot of work to do uh, related to extreme heat. And of course, now the world has caught up with your interest because now suddenly we start seeing weather reports and we see the weather map out west um, on the east and we see these extreme heats. We see the weather map, we see the oranges and the reds and this talk about unprecedented heat. Uh, weather patterns have changed. Um, whether people you know, believe in global warming or not, there is climate change. Um, I think science bears that out in every respect. And heat is a real killer. Um, of crops, of people. In fact, some folks say that the war in Syria actually began as a weather event, um, that the civil war that actually began in Syria was created because the farmers who were basically left alone um, kind of bided their own and the government did their thing, people did theirs. And when the crops started drying up because the conditions changed so dramatically, they needed help from the government. The government wasn't able to do it. And hence there was a civil war and the rest is history. We're seeing the migration patterns from those in Central America and South America. Uh, part of it is the instability uh, among their regions. And part of it is they don't farm like they used to. Uh, their crops aren't the same. So on so many levels, this is a very, very serious issue. And Alan, you're speaking to this, this notion of intersectionality that at least some of the academic community throws around related to hazards. And that's certainly been a part of my learning experience now about nine months on the job, I keep trying to feel out where the boundaries are for this new office. We'll talk about how this is a, a new step for municipal government in the United States. And I'm trying to learn where to prioritize my efforts, where the boundaries are for, for this work. Uh, and I know folks are listening on the podcast, they can't see me miming an effort to find walls in the area. And I can't find those boundaries yet because heat is so intersectional with so many different aspects of society, with so many different uh, services that the city operates, whether it's related to uh, a food supply and distribution, a, as you suggested, or housing, uh, homelessness, how the utility grid works, how we deliver utility service. Uh, it, it feels like there are a lot of conversations that somebody working on heat needs to find themselves in. So you're in a lot of heat, as they say. You're the first director of its type, I think, in the United States, as you alluded to. So that is a question. Where do you begin? So you get a nice office. People have an idea what you've, you're about. I mean, you've written about it. You've spoken about it. And now they've got the, the world's expert, you know, in the city of Phoenix. And now you have an office. How many staff do you have? And are you going to be getting more? And where do you begin? So uh, I'll note that we're seeing a number of cities make this transition to have a dedicated person or office focusing on heat. And while that appears to be a innovation that's in vogue at, at this moment, uh, I want to be sure to acknowledge that there are a lot of folks who have been doing heat work at the local level for a long time and just haven't had that title, maybe haven't had the spotlight on them as much. I think about folks in New York City in the mayor's office of resiliency. I think about folks in Chicago, even in our neighboring city of, of Tempe. There's been a lot of great work happening. And now how it's being organized and how it's being supported is being uh, reconceived a, a little bit. Uh, like, like so many other cities around the, the country, I think here in Phoenix, we recognize that there's been a, a governance gap or at least some governance ambiguity around heat. Who, who's in charge of managing heat? If there's a crime in our cities, folks know who to call. If trash isn't being collected on the appropriate schedule, we know who to call. But if it's too hot in your neighborhood or 
uh, f- folks are getting sick from heat at too high of a, is that, is that the emergency manager? Is that how, you know, who, who do we need to call them? Because we haven't organized that conversation very well, uh, because we haven't articulated how budget and authority flow, I think it's safe to say that, uh, that there have been some opportunities that have slipped through the, the cracks and resulted in situations all across the country where we have neighborhoods that are much hotter than other neighborhoods within cities where people are dying from heat at such a high rate or getting sick uh, from heat at such a high rate. So a, a lot of work to do. Our approach at the city of Phoenix, which is evolving and will continue to evolve, uh, is that the, the city council allocated four staff positions to create, a, create an office of heat response and mitigation. And we'll talk about those two words. Uh, we have a director. Uh, we, uh, we will house the city's urban tree program manager. Uh, when we talk about heat in communities here in Phoenix, trees are really central to that conversation. Uh, we have a, a position we call the built environment specialist, someone who thinks about all of the non-tree related cooling strategies, which are many, including some exciting uh, new technologies coming to market, and then administrative support as well to uh, do, do the work to make a, a team at the city, uh, the city run. And I think we will be asking for additional support to help the heat safety side of our work uh, over the next year or two. And it will be continuing to expand, I'm sure, beyond there, or at least I hope we will. Well, I see you having an interface with public safety, at least in terms of a couple of things I could think of. One would be homelessness. The other would be illness, uh, worrying about senior citizens uh, that have limited resources that may not have access to air conditioners. And then add to all of this, uh, the fear that we keep hearing about, about uh, states that are telling residents that we may have to do some limited brownouts in certain areas, as in Texas and even parts of California, where suddenly we rely on air conditioning up to a point, and then all of a sudden our dependency may be uh, uh, no longer taken for granted. So the pressure is immense. As I said, the heat is on. Yeah, there's, there's certainly a different... Uh... Uh, sense of responsibility and even a, a different feeling looking at the weather forecast every day uh, this summer for me personally compared to last summer. Uh, I, I don't want to say I was just an academic researcher last summer, but the, the, the goals of academic research are a lot different than the goals of uh, local government. And, and yeah, when you say the heat is on, I, I certainly feel a, a, a little different sense, sense of, of pressure and purpose uh, every day coming to work. So what are your, some of the things that you're working on now that um, will, will kind of yield some maybe low-hanging fruit that can help? Yeah, uh, uh, a lot uh, with a team, uh, an incredible team of folks across the city here in many departments. As we said, heat, heat isn't a problem that can be solved by or nor is it owned by a single department or function in city government. Uh, we, we are relying on contributions from so many, uh, so many partners, especially uh, as, as you noted, uh, because the problem really disproportionately impacts certain populations, and among those, no group harder than those experiencing homelessness, a very close collaboration with our human services team at the city. Uh, so let's go back to those two words that define our office, heat response and heat mitigation. We organize our thinking into two separate buckets, and the buckets are related and need to work together, and exactly where the line is between the two, you know, we, could, we could debate. Uh, we think about heat response strategies as the short-term strategies that can keep people safe uh, when it is hot, our cooling centers, our uh, emergency messaging, uh, what our, our first responders work, of course, would fit in there. And then, and then the other bucket, heat mitigation, the long-term strategies 
uh, that can cool the city, improve quality of life, make, make it more comfortable, and keep Phoenix as a very attractive place to invest. No, no region in the country, we could debate the exact metrics, but there's a lot of growth happening in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Thus far, it appears to be a very attractive place to invest. Uh, it's the it's the middle of the summer as we're uh, as we're recording this podcast. In fact, I believe today or one of the surrounding days is our climatological peak for temperatures uh, here in the Phoenix area. And as you might expect, middle of summer means a lot of uh, a lot of day to day activity for heat response activities. We have teams out on the streets trying to get out heat relief supplies, trying to get out the word about cooling centers and hydration stations but also embedded in those teams are case managers with human services who are, real, who are trying to help get the real solutions to folks, housing, shelter, food, ID, uh, you know, access to other services. Those are the real wins that are gonna improve heat resilience in the community over the long-term. Uh, the, the city operates more than 30 heat-related programs and services in, the, in the, the summer. So we are helping coordinate those where it's appropriate for us to do so. and. Well, where it's not appropriate for us to be involved, standing on the sidelines and being as great of a cheerleader as possible for the successful programs that are ha uh, happening. Uh, but of course, uh, summer will be over you know, in the next few to several months, uh, you know, depending on how we define it. And the winter time is when our tree planting activity in hot cities really, uh, really picks up. So we're certainly uh, also having strategy conversations around tree planting, looking at rezoning, redevelopment cases to understand where heat mitigation opportunities are. Uh, every day is a little different. We have to keep our head on a, a head on a swivel, and we have to be conversant in a lot of different uh, languages and conversations in local government process. And when we talk about trees, I'm a lover of trees. I mean, I've been known to plant many in places that I've lived over the years. How do these trees survive in such um, drastic situations of heat and drought? That's a fantastic question. We'd love to have you come out and join us for some tree planting uh, this, this fall and, and spring. There will be many opportunities. Uh, so the city of Phoenix set in 2010 a goal to approximately double the tree canopy by 2030. At the time, it was estimated that we were around 11, 12, 13 percent wanted to get to 25%. That's a big doubling. That's a really ambitious goal when we compare it to other cities. And since that time, our best estimate is that we've held steady. We've essentially treaded water. Speaking to the difficulty that you acknowledge, it is tough to, it's, I mean, it's easy to get trees in the ground wherever we are, but getting them to grow and mature and be healthy uh, is certainly a challenge in a water constrained area like, like Phoenix and so many other cities in the, in the Southwest. And we're not only talking about ensuring that they have enough water, but that many of the trees in the public streetscape, some of them get hit by vehicles uh, or otherwise, uh, should we say, vandalized or interfered with. There are utility conflicts above and below ground that aren't always anticipated or planned for in advance that require tree removal or some uh, sort of uh, abhorrent tree modifications that ultimately lead to the demise of the tree. The term that's thrown around a lot in the tree planting community is right tree, right place. Uh, and while people have different interpretations about what those words mean together, I, I think we all agree that we need to be very thoughtful on our strategy, species selection, location selection, uh, a solid maintenance and watering plan. And here in, in Phoenix, there are about 15 different variables that we are trying to manage in our tree planting uh, efforts aside from public opinion, which is very variable, of course, as well, about which trees 
are desirable and which trees you want in different locations. Uh, so being thoughtful, having experts involved, having experts in urban forestry involved in that process alongside community members were very hopeful will be the uh, will be one of the tickets to success. And also very frankly, we're investing uh, budgetary resources in tree planting and everything else that goes with tree planting at a scale that we've never done before in the city. 2010 was such a hard time for local governments as many of your uh, listeners empathize with. And our, our I think, well-written tree and shade master plan at that time didn't come with any big increase in financial resources. So maybe not a surprise that we haven't made tremendous progress, didn't, given that we didn't have the resources to, to support those goals. But that, that is a conversation that's changing very quickly here at the city. So in our neighborhood, we have adopt a, a park bench and maybe in your neighborhood, you can start doing adopt a tree programs to kind of help that holistic approach. I've been reading about some studies that talk about how humans, us, um, have really screwed up the environment in some of our cities by overpaving, and it means that uh, water, the few, the droplets that we do get, or the gushers that we get, are going in all the wrong places, um, and that causes an artificially warm dome over our cities, which almost gives it its own environment. So when we look at our cities, in particular, when we see all the paved roads and our roofs, is that something that's on your radar scope as well in terms of coming up with some new solutions? Uh, absolutely on our radar. And, and we uh, you just hit on multiple dissertations worth of, uh, of conversation <laughs> topics, uh, but we'll try to try to keep a, keep it bite-sized a, a little bit here. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, right now our, our cities are hot because of the way we've chosen to build them with materials choice, uh, our choice in materials. In fact, we have a lot of machines that emit waste heat into the environment that adds to urban heat. The geometry of cities is a complicating factor as well. And in many cases, our cities are leaky, as you suggested as well. A lot of uh, runoff out of the cities missed opportunity to support trees and, and other vegetation. Uh, th those design strategies haven't been all bad. Uh, for example, it's very convenient to use roads instead of dirt to get around in our, our, our cities. I think you know, folks, at least here in Phoenix, I think elsewhere, you know, really value commute time and, and vehicle safety and vehicle durability. So it's, it's a matter of trade-offs. It's not it's not like the urban heat island is, uh, you know, there are, there are upsides to the decisions we've made that have produced these urban heat islands. Uh, but now I think as we're seeing increased attention to heat and its public health impacts, as we've understood more and more about how, how to design cities, I think there are new opportunities to take care of. Uh, that The atmosphere, uh, for those who may not remember their high school uh, science curriculum, the atmosphere is heated from the ground up so anything we can do to find hot ground and make it a little less hot will produce a benefit for the air temperature in the cities as well. So we are looking for hot ground and we know that some of the hottest ground in cities is the road network and dark roofs. Uh, and here in Phoenix, we are uh, now at, at a program scale, not just a pilot scale. We're trying to change the color of those, those roads to make them more reflective in what's called our cool pavement program here in Phoenix. I think we'll be up to about 80 miles of reflective pavement uh, on city streets by the end of this summer, more than any other city in North America, I'm, I'm uh, reminded to promote. Uh, and uh, But it's really been a collaborative effort. But a lot of cities across the country are participating, helping move the market along. Uh, so we've got the cool pavement. We've got a lot more work to do on cool roofs. Uh, cool roofs are an exciting opportunity because not only can they help with the regional urban heat problems, but potentially produce energy savings and improve quality of life 
uh, for residents and occupants of other buildings as well. So that, that's the conversation about we need to accelerate. And there are a lot of other ideas out there as well, like uh, cool walls and using certain other types of cooling technologies. We, we need to keep, uh, keep ourselves up to speed on those, figure out where we can test them while being mindful of taxpayer resources and getting a good return on investment. I, I think there's this interesting uh, uh, b balance between wanting to be innovative, which I think is part of the Phoenix brand, but also ensuring that we are a good steward of taxpayer resources. I'm learning how to balance those two really important uh, uh, interests. But I guess the, the short answer to your question is yes. Cooling technologies, uh, you know, both old fashioned and new are very much on our radar in terms of uh, opportunities for investment. It's interesting how we've learned so much over the years. I mean, Phoenix is always hot. It just happens to become hotter as many, many other cities. But I recall growing up in New York City and even here in Northern Virginia, where I now live, I mean, it was totally common for people to put uh, black tar roofs up. And I guess if you lived uh, in the North, much further North than I am, that might be good for heating. Um, but for cooling, I mean, I can't think of a worse color uh, to absorb the heat than black tar. Um, now, uh, thanks to zoning and where I live in the city of Alexandria, I mean, any new building, I'm staring out as we speak, all the new roofs have two things. One, they have to have a portion that is now a green roof, which vegetation. Uh, and number two, they're all reflective coatings. It's, it's no longer the dark stuff. It's all very, very light and white. Yeah, fa fantastic. And I, I think we also need to be thinking about what's happening below that roof as well with respect to insulation. Uh, I, I'm aware that there's some debate in the building community in terms of building performance and efficiency what is the smartest investment? Is it the reflective roof or is it really good insulation below that roof material? And I think we need to be testing both and learn, yeah. learning about both here in Phoenix and other hot cities all across the country. As you mentioned, hot cities really span all latitudes in the United States. And this is not a Sunbelt problem. It's a, a Northern Virginia challenge. It's a New York, New Jersey challenge. Uh, it's a Portland and Seattle challenge as we learned you know, so, so starkly and so sadly last summer. Uh, and Understanding what works and understanding what works in which context and which climates uh, is, is certainly a, a, a question that many, many, many folks are trying to answer right now. A number of years ago, I was very active with the Smart Cities group that began in Barcelona and uh, in uh, Spain. And what's fascinating is they gave us tours about uh, putting certain water treatment plants under underground. Uh, being able to store water better and changing their zoning so that water would be better collected and or at least uh, stopping all the runoff from running off immediately. In other words, kind of dampering it down. But one of the things that struck me in terms of smart buildings was the fact that they had a building as a demonstration. People actually lived in it, but it was kind of like operating a, sales, a sailboat in the sense that they had shades and they could, uh, for the whole side of the buildings, and based on the time of day, they can turn like sails to the point where the heat was dissipated and reflected outward, protecting the innards from that excessive heat, which then meant less air conditioning, therefore less power consumption. And there really is a link to all these things about our power usage, consumption, and our ability to live on less if we invest in these new technologies. Uh, absolutely. And those are the exact types of design ideas that, that we are ready to celebrate and champion as they come forward in development and redevelopment proposals. Uh, of course, there's a balancing act in trying to figure out what we can uh, and would require as a city and in which particular contexts. 
Uh, but the, the type of technology that you're talking about, uh, of course, super attractive. And, and we can think about buildings big scale to small scale, modular uh, rotating shade, also really attractive in a bus stop, for example, where folks are uh, waiting 10, 15, 20 minutes on really hot days. Being able to reposition that shade could make a huge difference, uh, not only to that person's comfort, but to our community-wide perception of how attractive public and active transportation is, which all of a sudden opens the door to one of our other major sustainability conversations. Yeah, it's all interrelated. It sounds like you have an interesting role in terms of your ability to be the evangelical force for all the other agencies. So is there like a cabinet within the city of Phoenix that you're part of to have these conversations? Because so much of what you're doing um, needs to be coordinated with these other agencies. And in, in a sense, you almost forget about the formal lines. You almost have to get them excited to see the possibilities that in a sense, if you could work together, both will succeed. Yeah, I, I, my perception is exactly the same uh, as yours. Uh, I'm only nine months into working in local government. So I don't know if I'll say the same thing six months or a year from now, but it feels to me like so many processes in city government are a big tug of war game, but not in two directions, in an infinite number of directions with everyone pulling for the interests of their department. And I think what we've done here in Phoenix and what we're seeing some other cities do as well is add another person into that game who can pull in the heat response and heat mitigation direction, uh, be the uh, you know, be, be the advocate for, at least be the one asking some questions in the room. Yes, I appreciate that challenges A, B, C, D, and E exist, but I really need to argue for heat because we've also said our mayor and city council have also said that that's a priority. So that, I mean, that, that involves coordination across all city departments. Uh, and in some cases, having a dedicated liaison who interfaces with us in the tree and shade master plan process, for example, in the climate action plan process, for example. Uh, but I, I think I think here we have the support of mayor and council where this is a this is a topic and challenge where departmental leadership understand it's a priority. I think I've really got the benefit of the doubt so far in getting my phone calls picked up and my uh, my emails answered in a timely manner because folks are recognizing that that heat is a big challenge and that we have an opportunity to do something about. It. And the weather report is your great reinforcer. <laughs> they wake up in the morning, they see the weather report. I said, thank God David's on the team. <laughs> uh, I, I hope folks are not thinking of me only when they see the, yeah. the weather I said the report. team. I said the team. Yes, yes. Yeah. The, the team uh, and are thinking about ways to get involved, whether it's through our volunteer programs or thinking about candidates in the election process or thinking about where corporate giving can go. Uh, and that there are a lot of opportunities to help solve some of our heat challenges. And it is huge. Let me ask you a last question. What does success look like? Where do you think, let's assume that you build your staff and the teams, um, all the things go the way you want. What does success look like five years from now? What would well, that I'll mean answer, to you? I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll answer your question in two different ways. One would be the, the, the external metrics, the, the community indicators. Uh, success would look like a decrease in the number of heat-related deaths and illnesses. Uh, success would look like an increase in our tree canopy and a better process for, for measuring it. Success would look like fewer people in the community uh, saying that heat is a challenge for them in their daily lives. When we go back and look at uh, survey responses, for example, all of those, a few people saying that heat is a challenge for paying their bills, for example, those would all be great indications of success. So some of those are 
more than a one-year question. Some of them might even be more than a five-year question to move the needle. Uh, there's some significant investment required for some of these. I also think another way to think about success would be in our internal city operations. I think there is a model of success where we as the heat office put ourselves out of business. If every question we would ask or every idea we bring to the table has been mainstreamed in all the other city departments and the processes that our, our partners have, uh, our value add uh, goes away and then we can go focus on the next uh, the next challenge. Uh, I, I don't know that that is imminent. I, I hope we can continue to add value. But as you said before, I think uh, as you alluded to before at least, the idea is to build a culture in the organization that, that prioritizes or at least contemplates uh, what we're doing with respect to heat safety and long-term cooling of the city. So you uh, still are a professor, associate professor. I mean, how many students are following you in this? I mean, this must be a great resource for you in terms of students looking for dissertations in this area. It, it was uh, actually an interview question that was asked of me uh, in the as I was pursuing this opportunity, uh, do you think, David, there's a better opportunity to connect the university and the city for the, this area of work? And I was a little, I don't wanna say offended, but I was a little taken aback by that question because there has been pretty good collaboration between the city and university on this topic. Uh, and it's true uh, in other places around the country for uh, 10 plus years. But I, I do think there's a, a, a next level in, in courses that are fully embedded in working with city operations and supporting city operations in some cases. And we are seeing that our, our Urban Climate Research Center at ASU has more than 30 faculty members and so many of them work on heat related topics. And it does, it does feel like the number of dissertations and theses and honors projects and, and even volunteer opportunities for students just grows exponentially day by day. So uh, I'm excited to see that, uh, that movement. There's a lot of capacity building that's needed in local government to, to think and, and work on heat. Uh, we were on a FEMA panel just a couple of weeks ago when 99% of respondents said more capacity building is necessary at the local level. And I think the 1% had just stepped away to let their dog out, uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, great to see the movement right now, but much, much, much more work to do. And hopefully we're talking in a couple of years uh, where this idea that, that heat is such a consequential public health hazard in our communities is that that narrative is changing. So you are the chief heat officer. I'm impressed. And I need to say that Arizona State University has an amazing reputation for public service. I mean, they have an exclusive relationship with the International City County Managers Association, many other organizations, and have been in the forefront. Um, as a fellow associate professor here at George Mason University, wearing my other hat, I would love to invite you to kind of give a little guest lecture at one of our classes. It could be a short version. Um, and I'd be happy, happy to do, to do with so. yours. Yeah, um, I think it would be great to kind of cross-pollinate. And George Mason does a lot of outreach to local governments and state governments as well. And, and heavily involved in the climate communication uh, research field, which is uh, a really important part of our heat efforts. Yeah. So for those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. David Hundula, Director, Office of Heat Response and Mitigation, City of Phoenix. What a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, thanks. And if anyone's looking for more information about, about what we do, phoenix.gov slash heat, all ideas welcome. I'm going to have so much fun coming up with a title for this podcast. I can just, I, I'm going to have to figure this one out. This is tough. It's, until next time, be safe physically and digitally. 
You've been listening to another episode of sharkbites.net. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to sharkbites.net. And if you or someone you know has a story to tell, please let us know.